Good evening, America. Welcome to a Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman, along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, and Lamont Banks. How you guys doing this evening? Doing pretty good, Sam. Doing good, Sam. Hey, we got a really uh, interesting program uh, set up for tonight. We're going to talk about uh, thousands of Americans who are wrongfully convicted each year for crimes that don't make the headlines. Now, you know, joining us is going to be a contributing writer for the Crime Report, and that's going to be David uh, Krajicek. And uh, David has uh, written extensively on this. Uh, he has also uh, done a lot of research on it. So we're looking forward to that. <clears throat> and one of the people that he has written about is Rachel Jernigan. She's also going to be joining us, and uh, she's going to basically uh, be the profile of the wrongfully convicted. She was uh, convicted and sentenced to 14 years in prison for bank robbery, and uh, turned out that that was uh, that she was not the person who committed that crime. However, she did end up doing seven years in prison for that. So you know she's going to be joining us and uh, sharing her story also in a little while. Our phone number is three four seven eight three eight eight nine seven six three four seven eight three eight Eight nine seven six. We would ask that our listeners would uh, give us a call if you have a question or comment. If you have a personal story or a, a knowledge of a story that uh, uh, our other listeners would like to hear about, we ask that you give us a call. Also, chat room is open, so uh, we'll take your questions and comments there as well. Lisa, let's jump to our disclaimer. Okay, we want to just remind everyone that we are not attorneys and that a just cause coast-to-coast does not provide legal advice. You want to contact your personal legal advisor for all your legal needs. Also, the opinions expressed by callers and guests do not necessarily reflect that of a just cause or a just cause coast-to-coast. And as always, thank you for tuning in and choosing to spend a little time with us this evening. And, you know, uh, we often will refer to the IRP6 case as we talk about wrongful convictions and so forth. And uh, so we'd like to ask you that you would keep the IRP6 in your prayers. That's David Banks, Dave Zappolo, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, Demetrius Harper, and Gary Walker. And you can also go out to freetheirp6.org. Again, freetheirp6.org. And find out more information about them. Uh, and you can do fact-checking on us uh, on, on that as well. But I think you're going to be intrigued by some of the numbers and the statistics that we're going to be talking about this evening. I know there's another case that is particularly interesting to you, Lamont, that you have talked about. You and I talked about it earlier today, and uh, that is Steve Harrington. Yes. And uh, that's a case in Colorado where this young man has, what, he spent 23 years in prison now? Yeah, it's about 23 years he's been in, and uh, was actually, I was in, in, in prison with him when I was wrongfully uh, incarcerated as well, uh, and got to get to know this young man, and... and uh, his story and and when he began to tell the misconduct in his case when there was evidence after the jury had taken the case um uh the judge refused to allow the fact that the murder weapon was found 
at a, at someone else's home, not even uh, who Mr. Harrington was even in, an associate with. Uh, and I, I, my understanding is that it was presented that, Your Honor, we have this, you know, we have the weapon, uh, and it's it's at a location that doesn't implicate Mr. Harrington. And uh, the judge refused to let it in, refused refused to stop the jury and say, wait a minute, which is what he should have done as the as the judge. We that's that's uh, evidence that can show a man's innocence or his guilt. How is that not allowed? I mean, at that point, a mistrial at best should have been called whether whether the process had to start over. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and you mentioned also that uh, that he had petitioned to uh, have a review of his case for mm-hmm. um, what, um, what what is it called? Uh, the, the ineffective uh, there you assistant, go. Uh, ineffective counsel. Yeah, uh, motion thirty five C. He filed with the court, and this is what this is what's bizarre. Uh, a judge uh, uh, granted. Uh, that hearing, that he could hear evidence regarding uh, th- that Mr. Harrington had ineffective counsel representing him. Now, uh, I can tell you right now, a judge will not grant a motion 35C without merit. There had to be some merit there while the judge uh, decided to grant that. However, uh, you know, some delays happened uh, trying to get the hearing and everything set up, and uh, uh, the judge ended up, I believe, retiring. Uh, and a, the new judge came in to take over that judge's docket, and he did not allow the hearing. So we are looking uh, uh, for people and any of our listeners out there that are really interested in a case that uh, a man has set for 23 years in state prison here in the state of Colorado by the name of Stephen Harrington. Uh, we would love to hear from you and uh, get any help uh that uh, any of our listeners may be able to provide to, to get an opportunity to set this man free from a, a huge miscarriage of justice. So basically, um, just to reiterate, you know, we and we often put out that plea for uh, attorneys, uh, paralegal, uh, uh, lay people, folks who have a, a passion for uh, righting the wrong and, and help, helping those that are wrongfully convicted. And, and, uh, and, and you know, we, we need that type of assistance. I mean, a just cause gets contacted every week uh, on a case uh, uh, anywhere across the country. And so we desperately need to, you know, get uh, uh, folks involved. And that, that's one of the things that's, that's critically important. And, and, you know, we often talk about the fact that people are complacent about getting involved in this type of thing because it's the attitude of if it's not on my doorstep, if it's not in my house, it, it doesn't affect me when the fact of the matter is that it could quickly affect you uh, at, at a moment's notice. Go ahead, Lamont. Yeah, and, and, and one note, uh, you know, we know there are universities across the country. Uh, if you're a law student and you're going to school, uh, a lot of professors uh, challenge their students and their law students to look into cases, uh, cold cases, to say maybe there is something here uh, that, uh, you know, some type of miscarriage of justice has gone on. Uh, if you're a law student, talk to your professors out there and say, look, there's a case in Colorado uh, that we may be interested in looking at this man. And, and the unfortunate part, Sam, uh, back at the time when Mr. Harrington was convicted, it was when the gang uh, infiltration of gangs first started in Colorado. Right. It started really – so people were really, really afraid of and, and, and stereotyping people that may have been involved in a gang. And automatically, because people were dying at that time, uh, they were quick – rushes to judgment in cases like that. So, uh, you know what I mean? There's a lot involved here in what, what led up to this point. So, 
uh, like I said, you know, we're going to, you know, just cause organization. We're going to we're going to do our very best to uh, bring justice and, and hopefully be able to at least facilitate uh, and help Mr. Harrington uh, receive justice from a very, very uh, horrible act of injustice that happened in his life 23 years ago. Absolutely. And you can reach out to a just cause. You can come to our website and go to contact at a dash just cause dot com. Again, contact at a dash just cause dot com. Shoot us an email. And let us know that you're interested in uh, in getting involved. Uh, and, you know, one of the things, uh, another thing, moving on to another story, um, is the fact that you know, uh, the Michael Brown case a year ago, almost a year ago now, you know, it set off a, a campaign in this nation and, and, and an awareness in this nation of the uh, corrupt uh, activities that are going on uh, all across the country. It doesn't, you know, and... and you have certain police forces that uh, are set in their ways, and and they're getting exposed for uh, for their activities. And it's and it seems as though as soon as something starts to calm down, yeah, uh, then something else happens. And so you know we just had another shooting in Wisconsin, and and I know you wanted to talk a little bit about that, Lamont. Uh, what well, says uh, I guess Tony Robinson was shot on Friday by a white police officer. Uh, in in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, and it, in my opinion, it sounds almost and, and I don't. You tell me, Sam. It sounds almost a photocopy of uh, of Ferguson. Yeah. Uh, and how? This well, is, actually, worse. I mean, that, I think uh, if you really look into it, I think the the officer went into the home mm-hmm. and and shot him in, inside of a house, which is just un that's unbelievable. And you would think with everything that's happened. You know, you, you're thinking people are going to calm down, but there's not a day, as as you said, every time you think a calm is coming, something else of ma- of a huge of huge magnitude happens as far as a shooting, police brutality, and this is why the police officers are having such a struggle to gain the faith and the belief of of the of the of the American people, because every time you think, hey, we're having dialogue, we're coming together, things are happening, people turn around and do the exact same thing. Which is mind-boggling to me, but uh, you know, it's a matter of again, you know, the only time they started hearing uh, our voices was when we got into the streets and and Ferguson got in the streets and and people all over this country began to say, you know what, we're not going to keep taking this. And uh, I think with the, you know, you take that incident along with the uh, Eric Holder saying he would dismantle Ferguson, the yep. entire police department. Uh, in order to change that culture there, and you know that DOJ report that came out on Ferguson, uh, you've you've heard a lot of people in the news talk about the fact that uh, that's not just inherent uh, to Ferguson police, uh, which in and of itself, that statement by itself makes you just it, it, you know it makes you just kind of wonder what's going on. You know, you got a little small town here uh, where you got sixty seven percent African American. Yet, uh, what? How, what was the percentage as far as uh, officers in their in their uh, department? What they're like oh, it was three 90, or something I like it that? Was ninety three percent? Wasn't it? As far as as far as the percentage of officers, right or no? Not not African American. It was just the no officers. no no. I mean, of you know, if you saw the diagram uh, on the on the TV, it looked like there were there were three officers out of the whole bunch that so were African American. 3% that were African American. So 3% were African American, which is totally un, uh, not representative of the of the community. And you know, we were having this conversation with someone over the weekend uh 
And uh, they were saying, well, you know, in Ferguson is, is different uh, than like Atlanta or Chicago or New York. Uh, because, you know, in Atlanta and, and uh, Philadelphia and so forth, you know, they have African-American uh, law enforcement. They have African-American chiefs of police. They have African-American mayors and so forth. And, and that's because they got a lot of uh, a lot of African-Americans there. <laughs> so, you know, the, well, co- the, the comment to that was, OK, so Ferguson has 67 percent African-American. How does it make it different? Why should they be uh, subjected to something different just because? Uh, they have been put in a position of not being allowed to to vote because of of the way the system has been designed, uh, you know, th- to keep them out of uh, the, the the voting box. Well, well, then you got the tell all is the racial uh, uh, inappropriate racial comments towards our uh, commander in chief, uh, President Barack Obama. Oh, that's that's uh, the, crazy. The things that were said so disrespectful. Uh, in regards to Michelle Obama and even their children, it, it, you cannot tell me that. And the sad part about it is, when they were asked about the racial issue before the report ever came out, it was a, a emphatically, we know we do not have that here. Under no circumstances will we allow that. And to come and find out, you have emails of the clerk of the court talking uh, so disrespectful. Towards uh, towards our, our nation's leader and, and his family and the racial, you, you know, what I mean, it, it's just uncomprehendable. Well, what it shows you is that not only um, do you have the police corruption. I mean, anybody who looks at the report on Ferguson police, if, if you don't come to the conclusion that there's police corruption, then you got on some kind of blinders that uh, something is wrong with you. And then on the other hand, if you don't come to the conclusion that there's racism there, then you you are just there. There's nothing to say about you except you refuse to deal with what is true and what is reality. And, and when you look at you look at here in uh, in Colorado in our own backyard up in uh, up in Aurora, uh, which is you know where they had the Aurora shooting, um, where the guy now you know they got his his uh, jury selection going on. And we did the we did the comparison to you know white victims and white shooters where they said oh he was a, a great student and all these things although he killed all those people now you have an aurora where uh, it was either this morning or I believe yesterday where a young black man was shot by the police unarmed now they said well he 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 took his ankle bracelet off okay go arrest him well we were trying to arrest him. Uh, but only one shot was fired, and we didn't learn he was unarmed until after the shooting. How do you say I didn't learn he was unarmed until after the shooting? How does that say that you should have shot a man? And and in the chest. Now, if you could see his chest, then uh, assumptively you could see his hands. Well, it goes back. You don't – to shoot a man is last resort. The last resort. That's right. Of – you being in, in grave danger. Exactly. And from what I heard, when they went to get him, I mean, because this SWAT went to get him. Now, is this, uh, SWAT? Is this, SWAT. Is this, is this Madison? Uh, this no, no, no. This is no, Aurora, this Colorado. Aurora, Colorado. This happened yesterday. This, this is at 1.15 wow. p.m. 
So they can't say, well, it was dark. We didn't know if he had and a weapon. And it was mostly sunny skies. So you oh, had oh very sunny skies. 60-something degrees <laughs> yesterday. Yeah. And one shot to his chest, which, you know, they took him to the hospital. Say, well, we were, we were trying to take him into custody. We, he got one shot to the chest by an officer and died from a report I heard earlier. And uh, maybe somebody on the research team they just, could... Uh, they could, just shot it to you. Okay, because I didn't see on here. I'm pretty sure I heard that he got hit by a sniper shot. Uh, so a rifle that caught him in the chest from some distance away when they're saying we're trying to arrest him, but we didn't find out until afterwards that he was uh, that he was not armed. So where did you where did the assumption come that he was armed? Well, the sniper has a close range look. He has a scope. Is that right? Yeah. So that's just unacceptable. There's no excuse for that. Matter of fact, you're you're li- you're more liable now since you have a magnifying glass, so to speak. Exactly. You knew. So you knew before you ever shot this man, he had no weapon. Now, now they're saying, you know, the here, here, here we go again. This is the the uh, the next, uh, you know, Eric Garner. This is what the the uh, coroner said. Says on Monday in a Rappo County Coroner's office, officer performed an autopsy. The man, what name was uh, Vinzant, says, quote, he died from a gunshot wound to the chest during a confrontation with police officers. The manner of death is classified as homicide, the coroner's office said in a statement. Now, we will see if in Aurora, Denver, Colorado, if this homicide will be treated as a homicide or if we'll get a grand jury that will do exactly what happened in the Eric Garner case. Now, as far as I know, this wasn't on video. Uh, none has surfaced yet. But it just shows you that, uh, just like you were saying earlier, Lamont, if you're a black man and, God forbid, you have gone to jail for any reason, when they come at you, it's deadly force. It's, we are not coming to discuss. Exactly. We're going to say that we're here to arrest you. If immediately you do not comply, our solution is not to tase, not to uh, hand-to-hand combat. We will shoot you in the chest uh, via from, like I said earlier, I heard a sniper rifle from some distance away. And, and here's uh, going back, Cliff, to the shooting in Madison, Wisconsin. It says the incident happened last Friday, March 6th, when Officer Matt Kenny, a 12-year veteran of the Madison Police Department, was responding to reports of a traffic interference. Okay, not a report of a man running loose with a gun. Uh, the man was running in and out of traffic. Kenny followed Robertson into an apartment building and forced his way in because he heard a disturbance. In an ensuing scuffle, Robertson was, was injured by gunfire, according to police. Now, his dad says this, which I think it was really stuck with. This man it was just this young man just graduated Sun Prairie High School, died of his wounds. Uh, now they've given Kenny a bonus and gave, gave him leave with pay, so he's on vacation. The father says this: it was very difficult. I mean, I'm a military pilot. I was flying for my country. I believe in democracy, and I knew there was a problem with the system. And when I questioned it, I was ignored. And he said I was really bothered by it because I thought if I'm being ignored as a military uh, pilot, what's happening to other people and other races and other economic groups and so forth? That's right. So you kill a man running in and out of traffic. He is no threat to you in any way. Well. He, he he could have caused an accident or could have harmed. So we need to we need to kill him. It, it, that's that, a high that, school graduate. I'm telling you, that is their take on there's a black man in the street running. Kill he needs, him. He needs a bullet. Just like this man. Now, now here's the police chief 
uh, or here's the the article, and this is what gets me about these articles. When you get a cop that kills somebody, they immediately try to uh, shine a negative light on on the victim. This man is a victim. Okay. He may have committed some crime, but that you that does not, not mean you sentence. you shoot me in the street like a rabid animal. Yeah. Because I have a criminal record. Now it says Vinzan has a long criminal record in Colorado and other states. Police wouldn't say whether he threatened him, whether he threatened them before the officer opened fire. I don't care if I threaten you or not. If I'm standing there saying, I'm gonna kill all y'all, then that means you shoot me in my chest. But the point is, why if they, if it's not substantiated, why is the media bringing it up? Right. Why are you trying to bring if that that was not said? Nothing's been proven on that level. Then why are you talking about it? It's just like we uh, covered before. When you're when you are black in the news and you are a victim, this this man was killed unarmed by a police officer. They will bring his criminal record to light, just like with the uh, with the Aurora Theater shooter. Mm-hmm. What they brought is he was a brilliant student, and there's no reason why he should have committed these type of crimes in the first place. There's no reason he should have killed these people because he was a brilliant, bright, uh, great future uh, individual. Wow. But he's a mass murderer. It just yeah. goes to the disparity uh, it, that we talk about all right the time. And, and it's it's a, uh, uh, I'm going to use the term, brainwashing. Uh, and when the media puts a certain spin on things, and um, it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a perspective that is put out there that people buy into, which the facts don't even support the way it's presented to the public. Exactly. So that's one of the things. That's why, you know, it's important for us to bring things out here on the Just Cause Coast to Coast. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about a couple other things in the news, and then we're going to get to our, um, our our primary topic of the evening, and that being, you know, thousands of people being incarcerated each year and convicted each year for crimes that they did not commit or and <laughs> that the media didn't even, didn't even make the headlines. So you have people that get uh, caught up in the system. And because they cannot get that traction that they need to get that exposure, to get some kind of media coverage, you know, they're just uh, shipped away, uh, put into a black hole somewhere, and and oftentimes forgot about. But, you know, organizations like A Just Cause are not going to allow that to happen. We will be right back in a moment after uh, this break. This is A Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman, along with Cliff Stewart, Lisa Stewart, and Lamont Banks. Our phone number Three four seven eight three eight eight nine seven six. Three four seven eight three eight eight nine seven six. Keep it locked. We'll be right back. I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a sister. A registered nurse. I serve my country in the United States military. I'm your neighbor. I sit next to you at church. And my child was arrested, held in custody questioned without my knowledge, exposed to violence, witnessed to rape, placed in solitary confinement, unable to call or see me, shackled to a wall, beaten, sentenced as an adult at age 17, sentenced as an adult at age 16, sentenced as an adult at age 15. We felt lost, isolated, ostracized, misjudged, terrified, and in the absence of all hope, my child took his own life. And then I found the Alliance for Youth Justice. They gave me the support and resources to get through one of the most difficult times in my life. Now I know I'm not alone. And neither are you. Now we have a voice. Now we We have have power. power. In numbers. In numbers. In numbers. We we can can make a difference. difference. 
There are approximately 2 million children in the juvenile and criminal justice system in this country. These are the faces of those families. If you are the family member of a child who has been in the justice system, or if you are someone who supports this movement and is ready to make a difference, visit the Campaign for Youth Justice at www.campaignforyouthjustice.org. Did you ever have something you ever wanted to do as a child? Be an astronaut, be a doctor? I always wanted to be a police officer. And there's a strong sense of pride in being a police officer. You know, not just out there just to stop people for the heck of it, it's just not logical. We no more want to accuse someone or charge somebody with a crime that they didn't do any more than they want to be charged with it. So uh, we take that responsibility, especially with sexual assaults, very seriously. I think my greatest fear uh, one of the greatest fears that many of investigators experience is, is uh, convicting the wrong person. As police officers, one of the things that we're always very concerned about is uh, the potential that we have for, put, for putting an innocent person into jail if we do not do our job properly. And the end product for us is to know that we did our job properly and that justice The opinions and views expressed by guests and callers on A Just Cause Coast to Coast do not necessarily reflect those of A Just Cause or A Just Cause Coast to Coast. Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman, along with Cliff Stewart, Lisa Stewart, and Lamont Banks. Our phone number is 347-838-8976, 347-838-8976. And, uh, you know, we ask that you like us on fa- Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Uh, you can get up-to-date, uh, updated information every day. Uh, regarding it from uh, things that are going on with a just cause and a just cause coast to coast. Hey, Cliff, did you see this article uh, about the Brooklyn DA? And, you know, we've talked about their uh, integrity unit up there uh, that was established. But when Mr. Thompson took office a year ago, the great strides that he's made since then. And, you know, they're, they're, they, had, uh, uh, they had a unit that was in place. And uh, it was called the Brooklyn's uh, Conviction in- Integrity Unit. It was established in 2011 by Thompson's predecessor, Charles Hines. Well, when Thompson took the office in two- 2014, he increased the number of assigned prosecutors to the unit from 2 to 10 and raised the annual budget uh, up to $1.1 million. He renamed it uh, the Conviction Review Unit, and it has cleared uh, so far, and this is as of uh, a report that came out uh, earlier this week. Uh, He has cleared uh, now 11 men of wrongful convictions. Uh, 
Now, I know this one is dear to your heart, Cliff. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. This is, uh, see, when your name is coming up uh, continually and as part of every article that uh, involves NYPD, y'all know I'm talking about my friend, Mr. Louis Garcelli. Now, <laughs> says a number of the cases involved in battle, embattled former detective, former New York City police detective, Louis Scarcella, who either served as lead investigator or played some role in the original uh, investigation. And, and Thompson, you know, he, he tries to give him a little, like, okay, it's not it's not just about Scarcella, and we understand that, but to have 100 cases that he's got to review, he says, Thompson noted the crux of the problem does not lie with Scarcella. Our work goes beyond Scarcella, says Brooklyn's top prosecutor. Many of the case the cases involve allegations of prosecutorial misconduct and or police misconduct, but there are other reasons for wrongful convictions. And then it goes down, says, in the year of change, as Thompson describes the start of his term, the, Brooklyn's DA, the Brooklyn DA's office has brought charges against four police officers for alleged acts of police misconduct and excessive force. Most recently, charges were brought against NYPD officer Peter Liang for the accidental shooting death of unarmed black man, Akai Gurley. There's another black man uh, shot unarmed for no particular reason. But this uh, article, um, you know, like like he says, it does go beyond Scarcella. But to have one one detective that, you know, 100 cases has to be reviewed by him it goes to uh, showing our point that hey, there these are people that are, I mean, what what do you even call them when they, their only goal is to put somebody in prison to lock them up for one reason for whatever reason and, and to to lock people up saying you committed a murder when you know they didn't when you have uh, eyewitness that you know pretty much is a is a crackhead snitch. And you know that the testimony is a lie and you're putting people in prison for 20 years for life for a murder that you know they didn't commit. What do you what name do you even tag a person like that? And he's got a badge and a gun walking around the city and saying that, hey, I'm here. My duty is to is to uh, serve and protect the community that I work for. Well, your duty was to be corrupt to ensure that innocent people went to prison. But I'm so glad to see that uh, D.A. Thompson, that, you know, he he called it the year of change. He's like, I'm going after everybody. I'm going after the wrongful convictions, uh, people who were put in uh, in jail or prison wrongfully. And I'm also going after the officers and the prosecutors that, uh, you know, with misconduct to to show that, they are the reason, and these are all of the reasons. He's exposing it all. Go ahead, Lisa. You want to make a comment about this? Yeah, I'm looking at this. Stop it. I'm looking at the same article, and he's, they're saying in here that he says that wrongful convictions destroy not only the lives of those that are wrongfully convicted, but they do a great they do great damage to the integrity of the criminal justice system. He says that when when people come for jury duty, they need to have confidence that the evidence is being presented to them is based on integrity and fairness. One thing that I know, if somebody, if I was called to listen to something, my first question is, are you lying on these people? Did they actually do what you said you do? How much evidence are you withholding? You look at the IRP6 case, and you see all the evidence the judge didn't allow in. I'm at the point where if I was sitting in a courtroom and I was on, on a jury, my first question would be, how much are you hiding from us? How much information are you not allowing us to receive? That's where my mind's going to go because I've seen it happen so much in this country. Well, I'll tell you this. Let me tell you, 
to, to give you a little bit of an example, at least in my case, the eight-year-old girl who came forward and said that she was told to lie. Yes. When she made the statement to ADA Donna Billick at mm-hmm. the time, Donna Billick said to her, that's not the answer I'm wanting to hear from you. And she began to scream at this eight-year-old girl and say, that's not, my, that's not the answer. Let's try that again. Say that again. That's, your answer is not what I need to hear right now. That is insanity. Yeah, where is where is justice? How about the answer you're looking for? Is the truth. Is, is just, yeah, get to the truth so that justice can be served. They don't want the truth. No, they want a conviction. A conviction is yeah. what they're looking for, and they don't care how they get it. And and to Lisa's point, that that is the mindset that every juror should go in, because you are innocent until you're proven guilty. So you as a juror should go in saying, where's the evidence against this person? Is there any police misconduct? Is there any prosecutorial misconduct? Why do you have this person here not well, if they if they brought him in under charges, he must have committed a crime. Well, that is the judge's job yes, to, to admonish ensure the that ju- that happens. He is there to to inform the jury of exactly what the situation is that, that that the defendant is innocent. That's right. Period, and that has to be pressed so hard in the minds of those jurors they never forget it. And Every, even then, if they press it in the minds of the jury, allow all evidence to be presented. Yeah. Allow everything to be – give them everything and let them make an informed decision as opposed to giving them the pieces that you want to give them. Most favorable favorable to the prosecution. Exactly. This is going to ensure you a conviction. Give me a break. Well, joining us to talk a little bit about, you know, folks who uh, are wrongfully convicted and the news don't even make the headlines is someone who's done a lot of work on this area. And that's uh, David uh, Krajicek. And, David, if I'm messing up your name, let me know. <laughs> but uh, David is a journalist, <laughs> former Columbia University professor. Welcome to the program, sir. How you doing? Thank you, Sam. I'm doing well, thanks. I tell you what, I- I'm going to make it easy on myself. I'm just going to call you David for the <laughs> remainder of the uh... <laughs> I like that. <laughs> So uh, I haven't you know, figured out I haven't figured out how to pronounce it myself, Sam. So I don't blame <laughs> you. Hey, I, I had it easy going through school. I'm sure you know in elementary school is, is you know one of those things. Well, you you need to learn how to spell your name. <laughs> so David, talk go. to us about talk to us about some of the work that you've done on uh, uh, you know the numbers of people that have been wrongfully convicted and you never even hear about it. You know, later on we're going to have Rachel Jernigan. Uh, joining us, and she's one of the people that you wrote about. But, you know, as far as all the work that you've done on this and the research that you have done on this, uh, talk to our listeners a little bit about it. Sure. Sure. I, I was lucky enough to get a, uh, a grant, a fellowship from the Fund for Investigative Journalism in Washington, D.C. about a year and a half ago to take a look at an issue that has kind of been bothering me for years. I'm a journalist who's been writing about crime and justice for 30-plus years, and I've I've written plenty about wrongful convictions, but I wondered why you never hear about wrongful convictions for lesser felonies. Um, The simple statistics are that that basically uh, three-quarters of all known exonerations that we've tracked since 1989, um, 75% of those exonerations are for the crimes of murder or some version of rape. Yet murder and rape represent 
a small fraction of the total crimes in America, uh, something around 10%. So why don't we hear about exonerations? Why don't we hear about wrongful convictions for robberies and burglaries and larcenies and car theft and um, white-collar crime and so forth? So I spent some time looking into that. I talked to the best experts in the country and um, tried to come up with some some reasons for why these cases um, don't reveal themselves, and probably more importantly, why we know so little about them. There's virtually no empirical evidence about uh, wrongful convictions for these lesser felonies. It's a it's a vast unknown. Um, but through my reporting, I was I was able to get some fairly good estimates from again from these experts like Sam Gross from. University of Michigan, who's the executive editor of the National Registry of Exonerations, and a very impressive uh, criminologist from Wayne State University outside Detroit, in Detroit rather, named uh, Marvin Zolman. They estimate that there are as many, uh, that of the basically one million serious crime convictions in America every year, one million convictions every year for serious crimes, as many as 5% of them are believed to be wrongful. I believe to be bad for one reason or another. Five percent of one million is fifty thousand. That means we're essentially we are convicting fifty thousand innocent people uh, every year, and most of them for crimes like robbery, burglary, larceny, car theft, drug cases, and so forth. <clears throat> you say, how can that be? Um, you know, why aren't people raising holy hell? Um, you know, as they're being wrongfully convicted. Well, these are people who have no voice. You know, that no one pays attention to these cases. Journalists don't cover um, robbery convictions in their local courts. Um, so the system, you know, the, the, the basic story that I present is that the system is, is rigged against these individuals, many of them poor, many of them minority. Um, they're already cynical about criminal justice in America. And as Marvin Zalman told me, he, he feels that many of these um, individuals take a plea. They basically make a cost-basis cost analysis and say, well, I've got two choices here. I'm screwed either way. I'm going to take the lesser of two evils. So they plead guilty and do 10 months for burglary um, instead of fighting the case and doing six years for burglary. It, that dovetails with the conversation you were just having about um, the power of prosecutors. Um, that's one of their primary powers. They can take these these people, uh, these individuals accused of crimes, and say, you can do this the easy way or you can do this the hard way. And as you all know, statistics tell you that most people take the plea. Um, in federal cases, um, a solid 95% of all convictions are a result of plea bargains. Um, and in state cases, state and local felony cases, more than 90%, something right around 92% um, are the results of plea bargains. And, you know, uh, David, one of the things, too, on that is when you look at the plea bargain situation, um, it, it and based off of the all of the cases that we've been following and all the things that we've talked about and looked into as part of a just cause, um, you look at those types of cases, and it seems as though, and I'll, I'll use the IRP-6 as an example, just because the IRP-6, you know, did not take a plea, 
Uh, and this thing, is, it this case just reeks with all types of uh, 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 corruption and abnormalities, the way some folks refer to it. When you look at, you know, they, they took two grand juries to indict him. The first grand jury said there is no crime. The second grand jury, the uh, prosecutor, Matthew Kirsch, uh, only called one witness, and, and, and that was an FBI agent. He gets, a, he gets an indictment. The case goes to trial. The, the court-appointed attorneys uh, don't want to work uh, as far as putting together a strategy and so forth and so on. And one of the attorneys even tells one of the IRP6 tells David Banks that, you know, your job is only to, you know, uh, uh, make a decision as to what type of plea you're going to take. But when you have not done anything wrong, you know, why am I going to take a plea? And then it goes to trial and then the judge, you know, uh, well, the guy inspired the attorney, so they end up going pro se. And then it seems as though Judge Arguello, uh, because they are pro se, she resented that and um, did not. Uh, uh, conduct herself in the, in the court the way you would expect a judge to do that. And so, you know, I, as well, I look at your, your latest report that came yeah. out on February 9th, where you talk about thousands of Americans, uh, and, and you have some, some numbers in here, and when you look at the IRP6, sentences from 7 to 11 years, and you got in here average time served in state prisons, and this IRP6 is a federal case, but still, in, fe- in state prisons, you're saying 28 months for violent offenders, 13 months for drug crimes, 12 months for property crimes, 34 months for robbery, 17 months for assault. And, I mean, these numbers, you know, while anyone being wrongfully convicted serving any amount of time at all is not right, but when you look at the disparity of, you know, well, that, a... Exactly. Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. That's the carrot in the stick of plea bargains. They say... Rachel Jernigan, again, the you know brave woman who who fought her uh, bank robbery conviction out in uh, Phoenix area. Um, you know they warned her. They said, "Listen, you don't plea, you're you're going away for 27 years." Um, you know that's that's the carrot and the stick of the system, and that's again why so many people take that lesser of two evils. You end up getting hammered with seven to 11 year sentences, like like these uh, like this group of people out there in Colorado. Yeah, but that's that's an important issue here too. Um, you know, the Innocence Project doesn't take on these kind of cases. They take on cases that have biological evidence that can be proven or disproven by DNA with DNA evidence. Innocence Project does wonderful work. They've helped exonerate 325 people, roughly, um, in the past 20 years or so, and all but six of those cases were DNA cases. The other thing that 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 um, those convicted of these lesser felonies face is a time issue. Um, the Innocence Project says it takes five to seven years for them to resolve a case um, from their first filing to the end, to you know exoneration, if that's the way it works out. Five to seven years for the Innocence Project to appeal one of these you know DNA or and or capital cases. Well, the average term in America for a robbery is 34 months. The average term for assault is just 17 months, burglary 15 months, drug offenses 13 months, larceny, auto theft, and fraud 11 months. So you're out of jail before an advocacy group like the Innocence Project um, can complete look, even looking into and appealing your case. After you get out, you have even less chance of an advocacy organization looking into your case after the fact. They've gone on to the you know, the the thousand new cases this week. And, you know, I quote in that story um, a young man who's in prison 
um, who described the process of of trying to find an advocate um, to look into their case, whether it's a journalist or one of these innocence projects, and it's it's heartbreaking. He he lists in one letter that uh, that I I published in the piece, he lists about I don't know twenty different people that he wrote letters to the Innocence Project of Wisconsin. Um, Justice Denied, the Michigan Innocence Project, and so on and so forth. And his last line in this letter was, unfortunately, all were unable to assist me. So they're on their own. And, you know, we get, uh, earlier in the program this evening, we, we put out a, a call for pro bono attorneys, paralegal <coughs> folks, you know, lay people, anybody that could assist in cases. We, we have another case that we're working here uh, at A Just Cause uh, Steve Harrington, a, a man that's been incarcerated now for 23 years, and uh, we believe that he is innocent. And so, you know, uh, but again, you know, when you get on, on cases where uh, there, as far as um, DNA-type evidence, whether it's questionable or not, whether it's available or not, pe- people tend to shy away from those type of cases. And so that's why, you know, we're trying to ramp up folks who, who want to do some of the other heavy lifting. Uh, David, let me uh, interrupt you here. Let's let's bring uh, Rachel Jernigan into this conversation, and, and I want to bring her into it because uh, she's going to be a little short on time. And I know David, you you've agreed to stick around with us for a little while, but we wanted to sure. bring Rachel in and have her share a little bit of her story of you know a wrongful conviction and having spent time in prison for something that you did not do. Rachel, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? We're doing well. Thank you for taking time out to join us. And, uh, you know, we I, I, we always say that, you know, uh, we are so sorry that you ended up losing seven years of your life for something that you did not do. And that's why we work so hard to try and bring about reform. To And that's why we're talking about it tonight. Uh, but tell us a little bit about your story and, uh, and, and some of the things that you're – I know you can't get into a lot of details – on, on some of the things that you're working on now because of some of the legal matters, but uh, at least share with our listeners your story and, and people can see how quickly folks can get caught up in a, in a wrongful conviction. Um, pretty much this happened to me in uh, 2000. Um, I was wrongfully convicted on a bank robbery case. Um, I went to trial for three bank robbery cases. Um, they found me guilty with uh, no evidence against me. I passed the polygraph test. Um, I wasn't a perfect uh, citizen at the time when this did happen to me, but I wasn't guilty of this crime. Um, I really went through a rough time. I filed a lot of appeals. I lost a lot of my appeals. Um, I had um, an attorney uh, that pretty much helped me. Um, His name was Tom Hoydle and Mr. John Hanna, which is a Superior Court judge now, that really believed in me from the beginning, and they fought for me pretty much through the end. And um, at the end, uh, Mr. Hoyle, Mr. Hanna and Mr. Hoyle were two uh, attorneys that worked together in the same firm, and Mr. Hanna became a Superior Court judge here in the system here in Arizona. So Mr. Hoyle took his case, uh, for him because he just didn't want it to slip through the cracks and just me being in there for something that I didn't do because he really believed in me at the time. And um, 
So anyways, Mr. Um, Hoyto started filing all kinds of appeals. I, I kept on getting denied, and he just told me, well, we got one last appeal. He says, and it's an in-bank rehearing. He says, um, we're going to give it a shot. And I said, okay, well, I don't have nothing to lose, you know. I said, I've been fighting this whole time, and uh, out of uh, 15 judges, 10 of them voted uh, for uh, a retrial because they violated my my uh, rights on the Brady violation, and they overturned my sentence, and I got a new trial. And in between this time, um, we knew who the bank robber was at the time because of a coincidence that happened as this girl um, was bragging about all these bank robbery cases in the federal system, and sure enough, it was her that robbed this bank that I was in custody for so in between this time, Mr. Alan Simpson ended up taking my case, which ended up um, getting me uh, released. Uh, I went home on an immediate release, and um, I came home to my children. And after I, um, right shortly after um, I came home, I lost my 18-year-old. He got killed, and um, it's been a really dramatic. A turn from there, but, you know, I thank God that, you know, my life has been put back together. You know, I have a brother that's my pastor, and um, he pretty much helped me through the midst of everything because he pretty much picked up all the pieces in my life where I failed, you know, where the justice system failed me, and he'd just tell me, you know, you got to forgive, you can't hold that stuff in you, you have other kids that you need to fight for, and, um, it's true, you know, and um, I've been in church since then. I became a born-again Christian, and I take care of my father that has dementia and Alzheimer's now. And um, pretty much, you know, um, I, I felt, I feel that the legal system did let me down, you know, because they knew um, through the Brady violation, uh, I believe the FBI agent knew, he knew that I didn't rob that bank. There just was no evidence against me, nothing. But, you know, I ended up sitting in there for all them years, you know, and I so now I, I count it a blessing because, you know, my drug addiction was broken from it, you know, and I, I learned a lot of things through that time being in prison, and I had a sister, my sister um, that's a born-again Christian. She would write me and she'd tell me, you know what, um, a lot of things will fail you in life, but God will never fail you. You just got to be strong that's and right. you got to keep fighting because there is, just, uh, you know, go ahead. Just to, hi, Rachel, this is David Krejcik. How are you doing? Hi, David. How are you? I'm fine. I, I just wanted to, to fill the listeners in on a couple of the details on her case. You know, this was basically a mistaken identity case. She's a she's a petite Latina, um, and there was another petite Latina in the Phoenix area who was robbing, robbing banks. It was a series of bank robberies by um, a, a, a short... Um, uh, woman with uh, Latina features, and Rachel had been had been involved in a petty crime involving shoplifting. And there was it happened to be in a post office, and the uh, postal agent basically whispered her name to the FBI agent who was in charge of investigating bank robberies for the FBI in the Phoenix area, a fellow named Kyle Richards. And as Rachel told me, basically, when Kyle Richard got her name, he just ran with it. He fixated on her as a subject. It's a classic example of tunnel vision leading to a wrongful conviction. 
there was clear evidence that after Rachel had been incarcerated, some other five-foot-tall Hispanic woman was still committing bank robberies in the Phoenix area. And this is how she basically won her appeal, because a judge saw that and said, it's, in, it's, it's virtually impossible that at the same time there were two five-foot-tall Hispanic women committing murders simultaneously in the Phoenix area. This is so, this, the, the circumstances are so outrageous that she's the one, the judge, who insisted, insisted on an, an, an on-bank or in-bank um, appeal of Rachel's case that eventually led to her exoneration um, and uh, freedom from prison. And, and you know, I, I look at when you say uh, mis- misidentification, and just, again, for our listeners, uh, according to the National Registry of Exonerations, as well as the Innocence Project and Sentencing Project, and, and you know, a, a just cause, you know, that's one of, that is the leading uh, uh, category for wrongful convictions is eyewitness misidentification. And in this case, though, when you throw in the Brady violation, and, and I just have a quick question. Uh, so was the Brady violation, did it center on the fact that uh, there was evidence that did not get turned over to the uh, defense or just withholding evidence? Uh, what, uh, what, what's the basis of the, if you can talk about it, what's the basis of the Brady violation? All of the above, right, Rachel? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, I'm that's not sure. pretty much correct. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, they, they, they had, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a confusing detail, but basically they knew that one of the robberies that Rachel was specifically charged with involved a vehicle, a getaway vehicle, that was identical to a getaway vehicle in another Phoenix area bank robbery that she wasn't charged with. So that was the detail that that that, that this FBI agent um, and the prosecutors didn't want the defense to know, and certainly didn't want the jury to know because it blew up their case. Um, but they concealed that evidence. That was the Brady violation. Well, and pretty much. Um, there's another thing. Another uh, thing that happened uh, three weeks mm-hmm. while I was in custody, the bank right across the street got robbed with the same description, same vehicle, same ammo everything, and uh, this, and it was the same FBI, the lead uh, investigator, the FBI agent, and he still didn't say anything to the prosecution or to my counsel or to anything, and she turned around, and I think she robbed uh, three more banks after that in the same vicinity, everything, and he still withheld that evidence. And it goes this right was, along. This really, was, this really was a rogue FBI agent. Uh, I don't know if he's He's permanently rogue, but in this case, this was a rogue FBI agent. And as far as we know, he's, he was never disciplined. He certainly has never apologized um, to, to Rachel or anyone else. Um, but he, as, as Rachel very astutely said, he took her name and he just ran with it. He, he had tunnel vision on her, and he figured out a way to make her a viable con- uh, convict. And the thing is, you know, when you look at the numbers that the uh, National Registry of Exonerations came up with, I mean, last year was a record year. When you look at some of those those numbers, you you say, okay, you have the mistaken identity, but then you have then you have the prosecutors and the investigators that go all out to ensure that they get the conviction. I mean, in in two thousand fourteen. 
there were 58 of the 125 known exonerations where no crime even occurred. But still, the prosecutors went after, okay, give me a plea deal. Or, I mean, of course, there's no evidence because there's no crime. So they're basically convincing a jury. And like we said before, because juries are like, well, if you're sitting in that defendant chair, you must have committed a crime if they if they brought a charge against you. But to look at it and say, okay, no crime was even committed, and you got a conviction, that... That is so far from justice. I mean, it's one thing if you have a crime committed and you get the wrong person, but there isn't even a crime, and you convict someone for it. And then, like you had said uh, earlier, David, that the the guilty plea, that you get these guilty pleas because people are saying, I'm not trying to fight against the system. And to have 47 of the 125 uh, exonerations in 2000. 2014, they were cleared of criminal conviction. They had pled guilty. Basically, from the same thing you said, that there's there's no way I'm going to win this. I'll end up standing for four and a half years by the time, uh, you know, like the uh, uh, a uh, group like the Innocence Project, by the time they even get to my case. You know, even if, it, if it's that early, like I said, if it's not DNA, they, it's you know, and and not taking anything from them, they're doing a great job. I think they are overloaded. But if it's not a yeah. DNA case, they don't even go after it immediately. So you say, okay, well, if he's telling me he's going to give me twenty years, but I can plead down to four, but there was no crime committed. It, it's totally ridiculous that, uh, like in Rachel's case, a prosecutor or FBI agent will continue to press and and, and like you said, you know, permanently rogue or you know just. Uh, temporarily rogue that that's what they do they want their conviction they want their so-called collar that they're going after and they go to great uh extremes and any of extent even outside the law to get that rachel jernigan uh we want to thank you for joining us we want to be respectful of your time we know you have to have another appointment that you need to get to and you know thank you for sharing your story and 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 even the parts of of how uh, you know, you, you turned your life around, gave your life to the Lord, and and and, and it sounds like you're active in the church and, and, and giving back to the community and so forth. Uh, and, and, you know, oftentimes we talk about how um, a person being wrongfully convicted, how it affects not only the person that is in prison, but also their entire family. And so, you know, the impact that it had on your family, uh, you know, we, we, we applaud you for the things that you've done. Uh, to you know, st- to be a a a, a strong uh, focal point within your family and in the things that you're doing. So, Rachel, if folks want to reach out to you uh, in way of support, uh, how how can they reach out to you? Uh, they can reach out to me on my email. My email is Rachel A. Jernigan at gmail dot com. Okay, we'll post uh, that information on our website. And uh, and again, thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, excerpts of this interview, our listeners, you can go to AJCRadio.com. Again, AJCRadio.com, and you can uh, click on the icon for this evening's program, and you can listen to the uh, interview of Rachel Jernigan. Uh, when we come back, uh, David Krejcik. David, help me out with your last name again. <laughs> that, that's getting better. That's getting better. It's Krejcik. Krejcik. Okay. All right. So yeah. David Krejcik, who is a uh, contributing editor for The Crime Report, David is going to uh, come back with us on the other side of the break. We're going to talk a little bit more about folks who are wrongfully convicted 
and you never even hear about it. You don't hear about it in the news. You don't hear – I mean, you know, David, I think the thing comes into play there that if it doesn't bleed, it doesn't lead. And uh, that's unfortunate in our situation because uh, – and in our society because, uh, you know, these are the types of things that lead to the mistrust that we've talked about that lead to – you know, the uh, breakdown in the communities. But we're going to talk a little bit about that when we come back. This is a Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. We know you care. Now is time. Time to change the face of justice. Did you know that minority and youth participation in juries is extremely low to non-existent? The incidence of youth and minority offenders faced with trials have exploded. Youth and minorities are not being represented as they should be. We must represent for people to get fair trials. If you acquire a state ID or driver's license, it allows you to register to vote. And it allows you to become eligible for jury service. If you're 18... A U.S. citizen with a state ID or driver's license and registered to vote, you're eligible to be called for jury duty. If called and selected, make it your duty to serve. We can't get justice without you. Change. 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 Change the face of justice. Check your local county or state jury service website for further details. I wanted to be in the military since I, was, since I was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs I hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. You gotta find that link with somebody that'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families. does our justice system get it wrong, convicting innocent people of crimes they did not commit? A new project by the University of Michigan Law School and the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law tries to answer that question. In the last 23 years, more than 2,000 people have been convicted of serious crimes and later exonerated, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. By far, the largest segment was almost 1,200 defendants falsely convicted because of large-scale patterns of police corruption, generally in drug and gun cases. 
Of the remaining 873 defendants exonerated, nearly half were wrongly convicted of murder, and of that group, 101 were sentenced to death. On average, it took more than 11 years for a conviction to be set aside. Why does the justice system get it wrong? In homicides, the biggest problem is perjury and false accusation, most often by supposed eyewitnesses. False convictions in adult rape cases are primarily based on mistakes by eyewitnesses, while false convictions in child sex abuse cases are often for fabricated crimes that never occurred. 2,000 exonerations may seem small in a nation with more than 2.3 million people behind bars, but there are far more false convictions than the report contains. Most false convictions are never formally challenged, and those convictions that are successfully overturned receive little or no attention from the media, according to the report's authors. Just Cause, Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman, along with Cliff Stewart, Lisa Stewart, and Lamont Banks. Our phone number, 347-838-8976-347-838-8976. Joining us this evening is David Krychek, and he is a uh, contributing editor with The Crime Report. David, thanks for sticking around with us. My pleasure, and David, just uh, there is a uh, article that was published by David uh, that talks about thousands of Americans, many of them poor, are wrongfully convicted each year for crimes that don't make the headlines. Uh, while innocent advocates focus on lifers, those falsely accused of lesser crimes are the overlooked casualties of our overburdened courts. And David, uh, in your uh, article, you have a section here that talks about case clearance, a priority. And it talks about, you know, courts working hard to equalize the incoming and outgoing uh, cases to resolve today's crimes and infractions to make way for tomorrow's. Uh, Let's talk about that a little bit. Well, yeah, uh, you know, crime is is down, um, you know, vastly over the past 20 years. Everybody knows that. Nonetheless, the American justice system continues to stagger under its own weight. Um, I I throw some statistics out that uh, in California, for example, there were 5.4 million new cases filed in 2012. Um, That includes across the breadth of all types of of cases. Um, 5.4 million? 5.4 M as in Mary million, yeah. Now, the state also had about a million civil cases, 100,000 domestic cases, 100,000 juvenile cases. Add it all up, and the total in the state is 8.5 million cases. That's roughly one for every five of the state's 38 million residents. And 
I don't use those numbers because they're exceptional. Um, every state is basically in the same boat, some a little bit better, some a little bit worse. Um, the, the most stunning state would be Texas. It, it had 3.3 million criminal cases in 2012, 8 million traffic cases, 13.3 um, million total. That's one new case across the breadth of the criminal justice system, from the most serious to the least serious, one new case for every two of the state's 26 million residents. That, I think that's a mind-blowing statistic. So what's going on in the courts? They are moving product. You know, it's, it's a business. They need to get rid of today's cases to make room for tomorrow's cases. I found some statistics in the um, uh, best practices recommendations uh, of the National Center for State Courts outside of Washington. It recommends that 75% of felony cases be disposed of, quote-unquote, within 90 days of the case being filed, and 98% within a year. You know, similar statistics for misdemeanors. Now, they're looking for a 100% clearance rate um, every year. So Illinois, for example, had about 400,000 incoming criminal cases and uh, slightly more outgoing criminal cases in 2012. You know, you break that, break that down on a daily basis, and they are just mind-blowing numbers. It's a 1,000 cases a day that have to be disposed of in one way or another. We know how they're disposed of. They're disposed of with plea bargain. If everybody who's accused of a crime in America asked for a jury trial, the system would grind to a halt in a matter of days. Um, and, you know, that's why these, these carrot and stick methods, these swords of Damocles that hang over criminal convictions, uh, criminal uh, accused criminals, rather, um, take these plea bargains because the, the system says, the prosecutorial system says, if you don't, things are going to be much worse for you. Yeah, so the system is not set up to um to go after justice. Like you said, it's a it's a it's a money making machine. So they say dispose of ninety eight percent of these cases within a year by getting plea bargains, um, by you know, they there's so many tactics. There I can't remember which state it was. It it may have been Texas or um or California, I maybe. I don't remember, but they said basically where the judge would, would just take people and leave them in jail until they pled so that he could get the, the case off the docket. It's like, well, you're, you'll yeah. stay in jail until you figure out what type of plea bargain you're going to take so that they can maintain their, their uh, 95 98% conviction rate. It is, it is sickening because where is the oath and the creed of justice in all of this? It's all about... The mighty dollar. The dollar is mightier than justice. It's mightier than the sword. It's mightier than anything when it comes to the American justice system. And that's why when people say, oh, we have the best, how do you say that we have the best when it is all about making money? When you really get down, when you really get down under the skin of the American justice system, it's about making money. And how do we say that that's the best system on the planet? The interesting thing about that is, you know, the, you, have, you have to go lower. Um, uh, yeah, you know, you have to go into the lesser crimes and the misdemeanors and traffic court to really get into the money-making system um, of the justice system. I spent a day in municipal court in Montgomery, Alabama, and I found 
much the same um, much the same things going on that uh, Ferguson, Missouri, is now being accused of by the Justice Department. Basically, um, an income-generating machine. And again, going back to the National Center for State Courts, they admit that. They say that it's a fundamental role of the courts of lowest jurisdiction in America um, to collect fines. Um, Montgomery raises about $14 million a year on fines. I sat and watched the interactions between the municipal court judge, who was a, a, a fine fellow, polite, you know, Southern polite, but in every conversation he had with these poor saps who were lining up in front of him, all working men and women wearing the uniforms of their jobs, whether they were mechanics or nurses' aides or whatever, standing before him, in every conversation, the issue of how much they could pay and when came up. And it, it struck me that basically this court, and I think most municipal courts, county courts, courts of low jurisdiction across the country, basically function as installment loan services. They say, how much can you pay? On what day of the week can you pay? And then they make extrapolations based on that for when they will pay off their debt. And that's what the goal is. They, they, it, you know, the, the goal is always 90 days down the line to get these $300 fines or $400 fines paid off. Well, then you miss the deadline and a bench warrant is issued. You're picked up and now you're back in jail without bail and your fines have doubled or tripled. And again, this is exactly what Ferguson's being accused of. And I, I think it's going on across the country. Absolutely. It basically comes down to a payday loan money shark service uh, with a judge at the helm to say, now, if you don't come in with our money, then I will have you arrested and we'll put you in jail. And then we're not going to give you you're not it's not going to be at 70 percent. It's going to be 125 percent plus some days served. It's totally ridiculous when you look at the system and say, how can the American people? Uh, stand for this type of thing, but we understand, and uh, as a just cause in our research, is most of the time the people, the normal citizen, does not understand that this is what is going on. That's why we're trying to educate all of our listeners that look, this is how the system is set up. And just like you said, David, if everybody said, "Look, I'm not going to do a plea deal," if they did it in, if they did it in one one uh, municipality, I'm not doing a plea deal. I want you to give me a jury trial. It would bring it to a screeching halt to where they would say, you know what, we're going to have to get some of these people out of the system by giving a lesser charge, giving probation or something, or just saying, hey, the, no crime was committed. We're just going to throw it out. If the, if the normal American citizen understood that, then we could bring change to the, to the system. But uh, for the most part, what we have seen in our research is that People feel like if you are, uh, if you've been caught up by the system, you deserve to be there. You committed a crime. That is the only reason they bring charges against you. Well, you know, sooner or later, in some municipality, somebody's going to try that. Ferguson's probably a pretty good guess on where it might happen. Where everybody every day says, "I want a jury trial," um, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. I had a really interesting conversation apropos of this subject. Um, so the judge uh, uh, in uh, the state of Alabama um, named Charles Price, he's a he's an African-American man. He's been on the bench for 31 years. 
uh, coincidentally, he retired on January 16th, but my conversation with him was, was late last fall when he was still active on the bench. And and I said, you know, I'm, I was sitting in, in Muni Court in Montgomery, and I look around the room. Montgomery is a, is a majority black city. I think that the black population is about 55%. I look around that room that day, and I'm going to say... I'm going to say 92 out of 100 people in there were black. And, wow. and I said to Judge Pryor in the conversation the next day, how, how, how can that be? Uh, you know, again, the same, the same subject that's coming up in Ferguson. Is it only black people who break laws? Uh, you know, I don't think so. And, and Judge Price, in a, a very honest, um, a surprisingly honest reply, he said that, that he says it's related to the what he, the word he used was over observation of blacks by police in, in many U.S. cities, including Montgomery. He he said, "Let me explain it like this. Let's say you're making a turn without a signal on Madison Street in downtown Montgomery at 11 o'clock at night, and a cop sees you. He says, now there's really no reason for that cop to stop you. It's discretionary.' And he said, it's, if you're white, they probably won't stop you.'" If you're black, they probably will. And he said, then you'll have weed in the car, and one thing leads to another, and you're standing in front of a judge eight hours later. I thought it was really brilliant. Over-observation of blacks. That's just a kind way of saying profiling, isn't it? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. He said, I mean, said, it, he, said, whites, he said, we might not break laws any more than whites, but we get caught more often because we're over-observed by law I think that's exactly, you know, the the situation in uh, Ferguson as well. Probably all of St. Louis County and God knows how many jurisdictions across the country. And, and you know, uh, David, that, that, I think that's why we have to talk about those kind of things. And, and, and uh, I think it, when law enforcement knows that uh, people are paying attention to that and, and calling their, their, their hand, so to speak, then they're going to be more conscious of it. Uh, and and uh, otherwise, like we were talking earlier on the program, you think things are starting to kind of taper off or, or, uh, or calm down a little bit, and then as soon as, as soon as things seem to calm down, then something else happens, i.e. a Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, and, and so, you know, you have the, the Michael Browns of the, of, the, of the world, then you have the Eric Garners of the world, you have the Tamir Rices of the world, uh, you ha- now you have uh, you know these other cases that are popping up, and and it all boils yeah. down to you know in the case in, in Madison, Wisconsin, you know I don't know and and Lamont, I know you were reading about it earlier. Uh, if you look at it from the profiling perspective, and then uh, you you feel that you've been profiled, and then you all of a sudden you decide, hey, I don't even want to deal with this. I'm going to run. So now that creates. A, uh, mm-hmm. a another issue that you you may or may not have done anything. Now you run, and because you're an African American, then the cop decides he's gonna you know Le- take take the more than uh, he's not gonna take the less lethal approach. He's gonna take the lethal approach, and then you end up having young no, black men shot down. In the you're street. getting shot. Well, he forced himself, which is which is bizarre. It's not like the you know the claim they make a lot is that they felt that they were in danger. Well. If you force yourself into an apartment building stairwell, you forced yourself in there aggressively. The cop, 
How then can you say you were in danger when you didn't have to pursue that action as far as you didn't have to follow that act, that course of action? You know what I mean? And again, the, the guy wasn't he didn't have a weapon. You know, he wasn't armed. So he's not where you feel like I have to go in this stairwell uh, uh, in order to save a life. No, you went in the stairwell and took one. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I, I wrote a commentary for the crime report last month, and, you know, I, I've, I've covered countless uh, police shootings of citizens. And my point at this point is, you know, I saw it again in Ferguson. Cops have to have the common sense to back away and lower the temperature. They can't Absolutely. just press and press and press. And... That's precisely the re- response, or it's precisely what came to my mind when I read about the Madison case. Now, the cops are going to say that they heard, they believe they heard someone inside that 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 home, that apartment, uh, was in distress and needed that cop to come in and rescue them. You know, that's that's going to be their argument. Um, but but Ferguson, if the if the cop had rolled up the first of all, if he just rolled up the window and backed his vehicle down the street and call the supervisor lower the temperature call the supervisor just imagine how it might have played out oh and that that's a that's a good i mean i've never heard it that way but that is so true there are other courses of action uh that can be taken uh to avoid conflict and so if that means getting in your car you've not you know again the man is not running into a mall with a loaded gun so to get in your car and get away from the situation and let it diffuse a little bit, if you will, call the supervisor or call and say, look, we got a situation. There's a kid out here. There's so many different ways. And I think that this is the first time I've heard it you know, stated in that context, which I think makes perfect sense. And nobody wants to talk about that, the common sense part of diffusing a situation. That is what you are trained to do as an officer to, to, for public safety. Not not to uh, spark violence like that. It's un, it's uncomprehensible to me, David. You, uh, Sam, in, in your in your long lifetime, have you ever gotten in a fight? Oh yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, what do you wish you had done? In most of those cases, I have to. What do you wish you have done in most of those cases? Looking back on them, uh, you know, consider if if I. Let's put it this way. If I were a young man coming up today, I would avoid it at all costs. I mean, yeah. uh, yeah. back away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Back away. I the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and me, I mean, I, I, I had a temper that was just, you know, uh, I, I, even back then, you know, I was often told that if you don't get your temper under control, you're going to either end up dead or in prison. And that was in a, in yeah. a, in a in a uh, day and time when it was not nearly as bad as it is today. And so, yeah, I would have been in bad shape. Absolutely. Yeah. So, David, before we let you yeah. go, uh, th- there was an article uh, that was put out in Crime Report. I don't know if you can speak to this or not. Uh, last week, and it, and it says, Will the President's Task Force Change American Policing? And I believe uh, Ted Guest or, uh, did this one. And it was talking about, you know, the how President Obama had, had uh, has put this commission together and is uh, headed up by the uh, chief of uh, chief police uh, out of, out of Philadelphia. And, uh, and it's talking about all the different things that are in place. And there's some good things in here, 
but that the various police agencies, and I think there are you know, over 18,000 uh, police forces around this country, all of them have to, uh, to buy into it, and they have to not operate in a vacuum, just like, you know, obviously what the report just revealed as far as Ferguson is concerned. You know, everyone has to get on board and say, hey, we need to make this system better. So when you look at the article that was in the crime report, uh, and it talk, talks about, you know, will the president's task force change American policing? What do you think? Do, do you think we're on, on the verge of, of, of at least heading down the path of change? I think that I think that there's some smart police executives in America who know that things have to change. Um, um, you know, I think I think Ramsey uh, from Philadelphia is among them. Um, you know, he he understands you know right from wrong in the world of policing. Here's my problem with it all: we can't even in this country we can't even get a count out of police departments coast to coast on the number of people they shoot every year. Um, that's true. That's the they, first there's, thing no re- there's no requirement yeah. for them to report that. Yeah, that's the first thing that has to change. The police in this country have to say we're not perfect, and we're going to start reporting these numbers of police involved shootings on a national basis. The fact that we don't count those is a is a national scandal. So that's what I want to see them do first thing. Sam is um, come up with some sort of a a, a national protocol. For counting police-involved shootings, whether they're uh, fatal or not, I can tell you. To you know, within within an hour, um, a couple of different police organizations tell you how many cops have been shot in America this year. But but on the other hand, they don't count the number of times cops shoot citizens. That's you know, that's a that's a that's that's where we need to start right there. Yeah, because the only time that it gets uh, known that there was a cop shooting is most of the times if someone is killed and uh, someone out of outside of the police department actually reports it or or catches wind of it. I mean, you know, it's from the citizens saying, yeah. "Hey, the police shot this guy and and uh, and he died." But for for what they give for what they for what they give to the public. It's minimal. And then they try to say, well, we keep those numbers for this reason or that reason. It's our safety. Uh, we don't want to make it look like uh, people are living under a police state because the numbers may be skewed this or that. No, the numbers are what they are. Release them, yeah. put it out there, and then give an accountability of every one of those police shootings by a third party, not your internal affairs or not uh your 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 captain or your sergeant that says okay well this is the reason one of my officers shot somebody no let a third party um come in and say that has i mean third party no affiliation with the police department that says this is the reason that this officer shot someone and and after the investigation we find him guilty or innocent of police brutality or police misconduct excessive use of force so that so that the citizens of every community can understand whether their police department is really there to protect or serve, or if they're there to harm their citizens. Because you you look at like Louis Garcella and and uh, and and NYPD. This man put almost a, he had almost a hundred homicide cases, where the already I think eleven out of those of one hundred have already shown that he used false testimony from pretty much the same witness who was uh 
a, uh, a, a, a drug addict that he continues like, how does one person be around 10 murders? How does that even happen? And you don't say that this person yeah. must be involved or an officer, uh, that th- this must be a mistaken identity. It doesn't happen. But when you look at the police uh, department in that way and say, why won't you release those numbers? Why can the public not know how many people you shot in their community this year? Why are you hiding that information? It's a serious question and uh, one that I think we definitely need to dig deeper into. Your final thought, Yeah, David. you know, guilt, guilt, guilt and fault on uh, police-involved shooting, is that's complicated. But the simple part of it is the simple statistic. Just tell us how many you've shot. Tell us how many your police department has wounded and how many it's killed this year. That's simple empirical evidence that criminologists can, can, can build upon to figure out some solutions so perhaps not as many have to be shot next year. So I'm talking about the first simple step, not even talking about guilt or innocence, uh, you know, whether a cop was at fault or not. I'm just telling us, give us the numbers. Just give us yeah, the yeah, numbers. Um, David Krychek, the uh, contributing editor for The Crime Report. Thank you for joining us, David. Uh, our listeners, you can go out to thecrimereport.org. Again, www.thecrimereport.org for David's. One of David's latest writings uh, was posted in February of, uh, of this year, and it's one of the articles that we've been making reference to. And it's entitled America's Guilt Mill, and it talks about the thousands of Americans who are convicted each year for crimes that don't make the headlines and and uh, David, you know this is a, a, a excellent piece of journalism, and, and uh, has a lot of uh, statistics in there, a lot of eyebrow-raising uh, stories uh, like that of Rachel Jernigan, and and how you know she spent seven years in prison for bank robbery that she didn't do. So, David, how can folks get in contact with you, uh, Twitter or email? Yeah, I'm at, I'm at Twitter at DJ Krychek. Um my email is uh, first initial last name dcrycheck at aol dot com, and uh, if you go to the crime report, you can you can track me down there also. Okay, David, thank you again very much, and we will post this out on our website ajcradio.com, and folks can listen uh, for archives of the interview with David Krycheck. Thanks again, David. Have a great evening. Thank you for your time. Bye bye. This is the Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman, along with Cliff Stewart, Lisa Stewart, and Lamont Banks. Uh, We will be right back after this short break. If you were convicted of a crime you did not commit, what would you do? How do you feel to have your basic human rights stripped from you in a matter of seconds? Each day, thousands of crimes are committed, and each day, thousands of people nationwide are convicted of crimes they did not commit. Eyewitness misidentification is the number one factor that causes most wrongful convictions. This is due to the mind filling in blanks with things that seem right or things that they hear from others, such as the police, media, and other witnesses. If you are unsure if the person that stands before you committed the crime, do not put an innocent person in, jail. person in jail. Don't convict the innocent. At the inception of A Just Cause Coast to Coast, the host and crew decided to devote a segment of each show to an exoneree moment. The purpose of the exoneree moment was to outline the case and highlight the circumstances that led to a wrongful conviction. 
AJC Radio also wanted to highlight the successes and failures of the justice system, understanding why the system failed and what ultimately turned the tide and cleared their name. We wanted to hear the personal first-hand accounts. They were appalling, emotional, astounding, and overwhelming. Lives devastated by the system. Most of the people who shared their stories were released from the building, but not from the system. They struggled to get their records expunged and clear their names, find suitable employment and housing, obtain restitution from the state, and reconnect with their families and friends. And it hardly fit the definition of exonerated, which means to free from guilt of blame, to clear from a charge of guilt or fault, to exculpate. These are the stories of lives taken and returned, but must be rebuilt, adapted, reestablished, and transformed. The profile of a wrongly convicted. Today's profile features Glenn Edward Chapman. Glenn Edward Chapman, sentenced to death for two murders in 1992, walked out of prison a free man. Wednesday, April 2nd, 2008. The day is finally here. The day is finally here. It felt good. I'm still shocked, but I feel good, Chapman said. Chautauqua County District Attorney James Gaither Jr. dismissed the charges against Chapman. Chapman was convicted in 1994 of the murders of Betty Jean Ramser and Tenon Yvette Connolly in Hickory. He was granted a new trial when Superior Court Judge Robert C. Irvin learned detectives in the case had withheld and covered up evidence that pointed to Chapman's innocence. Detective Dennis Roney had also perjured himself at Chapman's original trial, Irvin said. Irvin also noted that a forensic pathologist could not even prove that Connolly's death was a homicide. Chapman found out just 10 minutes before his release that he was about to be a free man. Everybody was like, you're going home. I still didn't believe it until I actually was out, he said. Chapman said he was not angry about the time he spent in prison. He also acknowledges that there are problems with the justice system, but said that the system is necessary. He said that he will miss his friends on death row. Chapman said he believes some of them are actually innocent. I wouldn't be surprised. The question is, is somebody going to do anything about it? I was lucky, he said. Irvin also found fault with Chapman's trial defense attorneys, Robert Adams and Thomas Portwood. The North Carolina State Bar disciplined Adams, and Portland was removed from yet another death penalty case and entered treatment for alcohol abuse. Detective Roney no longer works for the Hickory Police Department. Chapman said he's looking forward to getting to know his sons and going to Disneyland. This has been a profile of the wrongly convicted with AJC Radio. The opinions and views expressed by guests and callers on A Just Cause Coast to Coast do not necessarily reflect those of A Just Cause or A Just Cause Coast to Coast. Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. And, uh, you know, um, 
David was very interesting. He has a lot of information, and uh, he, he um, man, he, he he does a lot of work. He, he has done this for a long time as well, and uh, and 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 so you know, I think we'll be drawing on his expertise for for a while to come, and uh, hope to have him back on the program at any time. So, Cliff, I know we have a caller on. Uh, let's go to the phones. Yes, we have John in Dallas. You have a question or comment? You're live. Well, thank you very much. AJC Radio, this is my first time actually listening to you guys, and I'm, I follow you on Facebook and social media. Um, you guys don't really know me. I'm, my name is John Wanamaker. I'm the CEO of New Leaf Alliance Foundation. I'm the founder of it. I believe it takes uh, an alliance of people to help one individual turn over a new leaf. I just did eight years in federal prison myself um, for basically transferring money to someone who ran off with the money, and they came to me. They said, listen, we know you don't have the money, but uh, we someone has to go to jail for it. You own the company, so therefore we're going to pursue you. And they actually pursued me. They froze all my bank accounts, and I, I went through a lot. But I went through it through it because there's a lot of stuff that I'm going to be doing with what I saw and what I learned. Now, the comment that I wanted to make was uh, about what David was talking about with small municipal counties. Um, one of the there was a television show on television a couple of years ago called Raising the Bar. In prison, all you do is watch television, you work a job, you play cards, or you do something, or you read. In my case, I read a lot and I wrote, but I would occasionally watch television. This one show really caught my attention because it was called Raising the Bar. It was about what happens in the prosecutor's office and what happens in the public defender's office. And in this one particular case, there was a, 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 a mildly retarded guy who um, they wanted to accuse him of stealing something from a store. The mildly retarded guy said, I didn't do it, but he wasn't a very good communicator. His public defender really didn't believe him because he couldn't communicate with him. And so the guy kept telling him, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. I liked the lamp, but I didn't do it. I didn't steal it. So what happened was they they, they uh, charged him, and as time went on uh, throughout this entire charging process, they kept coming to him with a plea deal. They said, listen, we, we offer you 15 years. He said, no, I didn't do it. I didn't do it, so I, I'm not going to take the 15 years. So his lawyer tried to get him to take it, tried to get him to take it. The guy wouldn't take it at all. They finally make it to trial, and when they get to trial, they say, okay, uh, we, need open, we need open a statement. As prosecutor, I heard that you had something to say. The prosecutor stands up and says, Your Honor, we like to withdraw the charges against this man. We can't find any evidence to say that he did it. And this is something that, to me, was just unbelievable. Three weeks later, the show was off television. <laughs> they never put it on again. Uh-huh. So I just wanted i wanted to bring that up because this actually really does happen. It's just not something that happens on television. It happens in real life. And right now I'm talking to a guy who had very minimal, minimal involvement in a crime. Um, he didn't even know there was a crime being committed, and they just offered him a seven-year plea deal. And he said... This is impossible. I have a wife and kids, a family, a full-time job. I didn't know that this was going on, and I'm the lesser. I have the, the least amount of involvement out of everyone that's on this case, and I'm getting the same amount of time as the person who actually did the crime. So, John, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say uh, thanks for the comment, John. We appreciate your call and for being a supporter of AJC. Go ahead, Lamont. You're going to make a comment. Yeah, and to what John's point is, uh, I, I'm familiar with the show. And and John, I was actually uh, wrongfully convicted. I did seven years, and your uh, prognosis of what happens, uh, TV and cards and and all of that is is definitely true. But I remember actually that episode. Uh, 
of raising the bar. I thought the show was really good, and they took it off. And I think uh, that that takes us back to uh, the conspiracy theories, if you will, as far as the justice system is concerned, whether it's the media, whether it's it, – you know, everything seems to play a part uh, in why our culture of our system is at the level that it is. And it's just fascinating to hear that, that even to the point of removing the show off of television because of what inmates may see in the not, – not necessarily inmates, but because the, the – uh, the thought is is not to inform people of the truth and to keep them blinded and misled, and that that's just that's simply amazing to me. Absolutely, we and, got a, and we oh, like to you know congr- congratulate John on on uh, his efforts as far as uh, his organization and the things that he's doing as far as helping uh, inmates when they're released to get reacclimated into uh, society, and uh, you know and, and as John said when he was coming on the air, you know it, it takes. All of us together, you know, all of us have different experiences and and can relate to different aspects of uh, of uh, the wrongful, uh, wrongfully convicted. And so we uh, appreciate what John is doing. And so uh, we hope that you continue to to follow a just cause and and we hope to uh, hear from you again soon. Go ahead, Cliff. Yes, we have a caller, Janice from South Dakota. You have a question for us. You're live. Yes. My question is, I have a cousin, his name is Juan Rojas, and he's currently serving two life sentences in, uh, on federal charges in the state of some of the federal government in South Dakota because he lives on an Indian reservation. My question is, you know, I've been listening and listening for quite a few weeks now. Probably, they'd say 70% of Native American men from South Dakota are locked up federally. Once they pick you up on a federal charge, you're taken to pure South Dakota, and you sit there one to two years waiting to go to trial. And they offer you these pleas. They offered my cousin a plea for two years if he'd plead guilty, and he didn't want it because he didn't do nothing. They did the mm-hmm. rape kit. It was inconclusive. Everything was inconclusive, inconclusive. When it came to the trial, well, we thought the evidence can there. They're going to let him out. They're going to know he's not like that. Well, the evidence was presented. There was no evidence that the all-white jury convicted him of those crimes because that's what the expert witness said. Um, hymens grow back together all the time. So he raped these two little girls, but their hymens grew back together. So that's why the rape kits were inconclusive. But my story is, who do we go to? It's like I've called all over the United States. I've written to every innocence project I could find. They don't have one here in South Dakota. There's been no exonerations of anybody here in South Dakota from what I could gather. Where do we go? Or who can we reach out to? Because my cousin will be sitting in prison now for 12 years on the two life sentences without the possibility of parole. Well, thank you for your uh, for your question, Janice. And you are running into uh, what we as a just cause have been finding out as far as the judicial system. They when you when you look at what the you know what the what the system as far as uh, you know, the the overlying, um, you know, just, hey, this is what the justice system is about. It's about justice. If you're wrongfully convicted, you basically, uh, you know, tell the prosecutor, no, that the, there's no evidence, that evidence is wrong. You know, it basically goes back to the, we as a society believe when the, you know, when the law says that you're innocent instead of proven guilty. But in our research as a just cause, we have found that basically if you get charged with a crime, that 
you are seen as guilty until you prove that you're innocent. And and uh, we, I mean, like an IRP six case, we've reached out to the the chief judge. We've reached out to the Office of Professional Responsibility, the Judicial Conference. Um, help me out, Sam. I mean, the Department of Justice. Civil Division, Civil Criminal Division. Division. I mean, yeah. everybody that you can think of, we've been to, and we have found out that it is the fight of your life when you are trying to fight for someone who has been wrongfully convicted. But what we will uh, encourage you to do is do not give up the fight. You know, you have to you have to keep pushing. You have to keep pressing. And that I mean, we're here to to try to help. Uh, you know, uh, Olivia can uh, get with you um, offline and get some of your information, and and uh, we can we can perhaps give you uh, more uh, information of what we can offer or what you know how we can help. Um, but as far as your question of who do who do you go to? There is really no one in the judicial system that you run to. You have to continue to fight the fight and press and press and bring, uh, you know, visibility and bring exposure to what has happened until you basically embarrass them enough that they say, you know what, we have we have basically no recourse but to uh, bring some justice to this situation. Uh, Go ahead, Lamont. No, and you'll find that whenever you're dealing with racial profiling, whether it's African-Americans, whether it's Native Americans, uh, Hispanics, whatever the case is, I can tell you, you you have an opportunity because of the tone of the country right now Mm -hmm. uh, to raise that issue uh, to your local and state legislators there uh, in, in South Dakota. Perhaps that opportunity presents itself because of the temperature of the country right now. So I think sometimes there's a climate, if you will, in the country that allows you to present these arguments that in a lot of cases would be ignored. But right now, if you notice the tone of the country, we are dealing with racial profiling, uh, disparities among minorities and these type of things. So I would I would suggest that you contact your local uh, uh, legislators, you contact your senators and, and congresspeople for South Dakota in uh, in Congress and and continue to do it until they stop and say we need to listen and get other people with this. That's a trend going on in South Dakota where Native Americans are uh, profiled wrongfully. I can guarantee you that's a news story. And uh, Janice, this is Sam. Are you, are you still there? Yes, I am. I'm still here. I have a quick question for you. Now, you know, I, mm-hmm. I'm not that familiar uh, with uh, the uh, the practice of law or, or the rules, that I, I should say, as it applies to criminal investigations and criminal uh, prosecution on, on reservations. Uh, did this occur on a reservation? Yes, it did. Yes, and it so, supposedly uh, occurred. And so you may know more about this than I do, but... Uh, uh, is it true that under federal law, you know, tribal courts actually have the authority to prosecute tribal members uh, for, for crimes that are committed on a reservation? However, you know, they can defer that to uh, to the federal court system, if you will. Uh, and it sounds like that is what happened in this case. Is, is that what happened in, in this situation? Well, from what I've learned these past few years is that our tribal, our tribal law and order code has the code in it to prosecute on these charges. But what's been happening is my tribe is very small. We've had a lot of corruption in 
for some reason, this tribe invited the feds in to prosecute on crimes other than the seven capital crimes, which they're supposed to only be prosecuting. Here in South Dakota, the feds come and prosecute for every little thing. The other states, Montana, North Dakota, Minnesota, Wyoming, Nebraska, they only prosecute the seven federal crimes, the seven capital crimes, I guess. But here in South Dakota, they're just rampant. You see these, you see long lists of people getting picked up and they're sitting in jail in Pierce, South Dakota, waiting for one to two years to get something and they just give up and they take the plea bargain and they're gone. So the last statistics that we found out was they say up to 70% of our Native American males here in South Dakota are locked up federally or have some kind of federal felony charges on them. I have written to the senators and the legislators from South Dakota. They're racist. They don't care. Well, and, and you know, you know, it, I've, I've done that already. <laughs> well, and, and I think, you know, it, in this situation, I think you, you probably now you, you say you've written state legislators. No, because we're not governed by state law. We're governed oh. by federal law. Yeah, and oh, yeah, I, I just wanted to uh, be sure I understood what you said. And so, yeah. uh, it, you know, based on the, the limited research that we've been able to do on it, it sounds like, you know, this is one of those situations where uh, the the tribunal can can invite the feds to come in and prosecute. And it sounds like, you know, the tribal leaders have kind of lost control of things there and 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 so uh, are you making reference to the tribal law and order act uh from 2010 yes. as far as some yes. of the things that we uh, have followed? our own we have our own law and order code we're one of the tribes that are totally sovereign we never signed any treaty we never signed any nothing with the um federal government our tribe never did and it, it's interesting because um i fought with the state of south dakota on the state level over Indian Child Welfare Act issues, and I got back over 700 kids to their families from the state. So I know I can regulate and do things in that way, but coming upon my cousin's case, it's like it's nothing that I've ever dreamed of. It's like every time I go somewhere, it, it hits, and the Indian attorneys, they, they think, like you said, if they picked him up, well, that he must be guilty of it. But it's not that way. So the Indian attorneys that do are here in South Dakota, they don't want to touch any of these cases that if they're picked up federally, they believe that they're guilty and they would just let them sit there. Even if yeah. they're innocent, there's no innocent. And so I'm like, where do we go? What am I supposed to do? Am I, and my, you know, my dad, he's like, you're getting involved in this and you're going further. He said, those feds are going to get you. He said, what are you going to do? If there's nothing I can do. I'm just going to keep going. Cause I said, I didn't do, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm just asking questions. And trying yeah. to get my cousin because he's serving two life sentences. The rest of his life, we're never going to see him. Wow, we're yeah. well, never going to see him. I tell you what, Janice. You know, uh, like Cliff said a moment ago, uh, this is something that we, you know, that we don't often uh, uh, hear about. And so we certainly mm -hmm. appreciate your call, and we appreciate what you're doing uh, as far as being an advocate. But yeah, if you could share more information offline uh, uh, with Olivia, and then okay. we can at least start to do a little bit more exploration into this because there are federal agencies that are engaged in the uh, in the Tribal Law and Order Act. And, uh, and But like Cliff said, you know, <laughs> it sounds like you have ex exhausted every avenue and those are the kind of things we need to we need to bring more awareness to and raise the raise the bar and, and raise awareness on those kind of things. But you know, please share that information with Olivia and then maybe we can we can help out by assigning someone to 
least do a little bit more research on this end and, and uh, get back with you. Will that work for you? That will work for me fine. Thank you. Thanks for calling, Thank Janice. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, so, you know, man, that's that's crazy. And, and you know, the, the uh, tribal law and stuff that relates to reservations, that's a, that's a whole another world. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that's something that we as a Just Cause haven't delved, in, delved into. But, um, I mean, the the thing that I take most from this, and it's a very sad situation, but it just shows that, I mean, look at the justice system, the so-called justice system of America. No matter who you are, where you're, where you are, your once you get locked up, your voice just disappears. And to get two life sentences, and um, from what she's saying, evidence that that is, you know, just basically nothing. And then to have other attorneys that say, well, if he got picked up, he must be guilty of something. So I mean, she she. She needs somewhere where she can get some hope, where she can get some uh, some guidance. Sounds like she's absolutely uh, familiar with the system. She's fought to get uh, what does she say? Um, seven hundred. Uh, yeah, seven hundred children returned to their families. So I mean, she's she she knows where to where to go as far as the the system is concerned. But um, it's a very difficult push. But our don't give up the fight. Don't give up the fight. So uh, look like Olivia is getting some information from her. And uh, we'll see what we can do as a just cause because um, it's it's very sad and it, it it really troubles you to see that this is what the justice system continues to do and and I'm often appalled at the fact that oh it's called this is the best system in the world. Well, and you know one thing too that Janice touched on and and we talk about this from time to time. If you notice what she said, her father said, uh, you know Janice, you better leave that alone. You know the feds going to pick you up and and then all of a sudden you're going to disappear. That. The fear and intimidation, that is something that, you know, prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges, uh, legislators, senators, congressmen, they are supposed to be servants of uh, of the nation. You know, they're they're supposed to serve in in a certain capacity. Certainly, they have a job to do. If a person commits a crime, yes, a prosecutor is supposed to prosecute them to the extent of the law. Uh, but it's supposed to be a fair, uh, a, a fair trial, uh, like we were talking about earlier uh, with uh, the case uh, involving Rachel Jernigan. You know, when you have Brady violations where you know a person didn't commit a crime, yet you allow them to sit in prison for seven years, that's not what the system is supposed to be about. The things that Janice just shared, um, and, and Lisa was just kind of confirming from a physiological perspective, you know, some some things that are just not physically possible, uh, you know, when you talk about a, a rape uh, uh, allegation, you know, and, 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 and talking about, you know, something happened, but then there's no, no evidence of a rape. Is that the, kind of the way you took it, Lisa? Yeah, that's what it sounded like. Saying they, they said the girls were raped, but their hymen grew back. That is the most insane thing I think I've ever that's heard in my life. physiologically impossible. It yeah, does not, not grow happen. back. That's like saying a woman had a baby, but her womb shows no, no impossible. Yeah, 
And so, so therein lies the evidence that Janice is saying that there, there was no crime. There's committed. no crime committed. There's no evidence that crime was committed. There, there. And I, if I'm uh, understood her correctly, there was no rape kit or anything, right? Right. They said the rape kits were flawed because the uh, the expert witness came in and said hymens grow back all the time. It, that is a total lie. It is physically impossible. Wow. Physically Man. impossible, and you would think that. The, the the judge or whoever's involved uh, would would get uh, where are the attorneys that says give me a second opinion because this expert witness is drunk high insane mentally incapacitated there's something wrong with that that well, does not happen and Cliff when you just even listening to the the uh, statistics that Janice was sharing and you know we 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 haven't looked it up or anything but you know she lives there and and mm. it's not far fetched to think that you know she said that. You know, seventy percent of the male population is is being thrown in jail. Yeah, uh, it's like a dismantling of another segment of right. our society. Exactly. Just like you know, in the African American community, you know, the African American community gets charged with, well, you know, uh, everyone's out of control. You know, there are no father figures in the home, and and all this nonsense. When the father father figures are being snatched out of the homes or shot down in the streets, you know, that's that's why we have to talk about all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, Janice's situation, man, that's, that's got me kind of, uh, it's got me intrigued. Uh, when you, you when you know that there is another system that's supposed to work, according to the, 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 uh, the Native American uh, nation. Right. And when that's failing because of corruption, whatever the situation is. So, Lamont, let's put out another plea out there for Steve. Okay, folks, uh, anybody out there listening that uh, whether you're a, a law student, a professor, uh, that deals with wrongful convictions, cold cases, anything like that, uh, any universities. Uh, Mr. Stephen Harrington has been serving 23 years for a crime he did not commit. Uh, and we need some folks to look into that. Uh, uh, there was a, a information and evidence that showed that that was the case. And we're just asking anybody out there that may be able to offer some assistance to us. We'd appreciate it. We'd like to hear from you on that. Also want to ask that you keep the IRP6 in your prayers. That's David Banks, Dave Zapolo, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, Demetrius Harper, and Gary Walker. For more information on the IRP6, please go to freetheirp6.org. And this has this whole situation with IRP6 has had a profound effect uh, and impact on their families. Lisa? Yes, and we'd like everyone to go out to GoFundMe.com. That's GoFundMe.com. Do a search on IRP6, and you'll see an area out there where you can donate to the IRP6 families and all to help them through the struggle that they're going through with their uh, head of household being locked up uh, wrongly for so long. They do need your help. Any help that you're able to do is appreciated. We want to say thank you to everyone that called in, everyone in the chat room for your questions and your comments tonight. Also want to say thank you to our guests for the evening, David Krychek and Rachel Jernigan. Thank you very much for taking time out and uh, spending a little of your time with us tonight. To our production team, K&D Productions, Captain Kyle and Dustin Jackson helping out Ill Skillers Girl in the control room to make sure you hear what it is that we have to say. Our production support team, they ensure that we have accurate and up-to-date information so that we can pass that on to you and to the truth. We know you're out there. We appreciate it. For archives of our program, go to AJCRadio.com for the weekly uh, archives of our weekly broadcast. Also, for 24 by 7 AJC programming, go to Live365.com 
Sunday mornings. You can catch us at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, and that is at prn.fm. You can also catch us on the man programming at the405.com. That's the number, 405radio.com, and then also on iTunes. We want you to uh, always remember, you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. On behalf of Cliff Stewart, Lisa Stewart, and Lamont Banks, I'm Sam Thurman. This is a Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. And Lisa, I feel you're looking over my shoulder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we didn't say thank you to Ms. Barbara and Olivia for all your hard work. Thanks, guys. We appreciate it. <laughs> thank you, Lisa. Good night, America. We'll talk to you on Thursday evening. Good night. Good night.